Hello, We Rise. This is Lil Milagro Enriquez with Mycelium Youth Network. Mycelium Youth Network prepares young people for climate change using a combination of our ancestral knowledge and practices and the best of science, technology, engineering, arts, and math thinking. For the past year, we've been collaborating with the good people of We Rise and Bioneers to bring you an amazing project to support young people in telling their stories of climate resilience and environmental justice. You can learn more about our collaboration with We Rise and Bioneers and support our work by going to our website at www.myceliumyouthnetwork.org. That is www.myceliummyceliumyouthnetwork.org. Youth, network, N-E-T-W-O-R-K, dot O-R-G. Today, we are so excited to share with you keynote presentations from our conference called Apocalyptic Resilience, an Afro and Indigenous Futuristic Adventure. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates. And I really hope you enjoy these amazing keynote speakers. really extremely excited to introduce our keynote speakers. Isha and Atek Batsin are going to be joining us today for an intergenerational conversation. In planning this conference, we wanted to make sure that all voices were present and centered because this truly is a collective movement. This is a movement that requires all bodies, all people, right front and center. And so, here are the bios of our keynote speakers today that will be having a conversation together about intergenerational organizing and healing. Atik Batsin is a traditional healer. He is a tribal elder, traditional healer, consultant, historian, author, artist, and musician. He has worked in radio, television, and theater. Atek Batsin has provided program design, evaluation, and training locally and nationally for over 30 years. He has worked as a health educator, prevention specialist, psychotherapist, and traditional healer serving diverse populations. And he is founder of the Kalmek Atslan, a traditional indigenous school, and has taught courses at universities and high schools. We welcome you, Atek. Isha Clark is a 16-year-old from Oakland, California, is one of the original members of Youth Versus Apocalypse. If you don't know about them, get to know them. They are the truth. A diverse group of youth activists who came together to protest a coal terminal, which was and still is to be built in an underserved community of color here in Oakland. Isha strives to create a movement that reflects the world that young people want to see. Whew. She works to make sure the voices of young people, people of color and disenfranchised frontline communities are the loudest. Isha and Atek Batsin will be having a conversation today about seeding our future. This will be an intergenerational conversation moderated by Mycelium's founder, Lil Milagro. We welcome all of you. Hi, thank you. The first question I had was that so much of apocalyptic resilience really came out of the need that young people express that we in this moment take time to play, to game, and to dream outside of the boundaries uh, that 
colonialism and genocide have in place upon us. When you hear the term either indigenous or native futurism or black futurism, what does it mean for you that is different than to be frank, more white or European science fiction or fantasy? What is opened up as a space of possibility? I'm going to uh, respond with a story because that's that's the way we we do our work in indigenous communities is through storytelling and the stories don't always have to be um, um, some some strange story that, that we can't relate to this one's very relatable and it relates to both we as humans and and it relates to our climate so there's a an individual in the community that works with uh people in their last stages of life he works in uh hospice and he's working with this one individual who's been diabetic and is in late stage renal failure. That means his kidneys aren't working. So this individual goes for dialysis three times a week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. On Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, the person stays in bed because they're recovering from the treatment on the days prior. So they have one good day a week, which is Sunday. And so and and as as a way to deal with all the pain and suffering this individual started smoking pot rather than taking opioids or something else so this person's smoking uh, staying home smoking and what happens is we have a, a an attitude about that in in our community that is that is a, a sort of leftover attitude if you want it's uh, we refer to people as marijuanos and, and a marijuano is someone who doesn't do anything. It's just lazy, just hangs around and smokes pot. And so the wife and the daughter coming with this template, with this idea of, of, of their, their relative, decide that all he's doing is laying around all day, smoking pot, getting high. Right. Rather than understanding that this individual is suffering and he's dealing with late stage diabetes. And so they miss this individual and they want him back in their life in the same way that he was before. The, the loving husband, the, the, the good father, the, the one that likes to get out and do things, but the person isn't capable of doing that anymore. And, and so the whole family is affected by it. This is how uh, trauma for one individual affects the whole family and how the trauma for one community can be carried on to the generations that follow, right? They're all impacted by this one thing, in this case, which is diabetes. But, but I'm talking about this because this is, um, no, there's nothing that can be done to intervene at this point to make this person better, to make them well, right? This is late stage diabetes. The, the, the disease has a trajectory and at this part of the trajectory, nothing is to be done except to let the person uh, die, in essence. And I want to use this as a metaphor for understanding climate change. Because if there was intervention to be done, it would have been done when the person was in his teens or in his 20s. He could have stopped eating so much food, especially unhealthy food, and he could have exercised. He could have done the right things to make sure that in late stage that he would have been healthy in his 50s or 60s. He would have been healthy rather than dying of his choices when he was young. And this is where we are with climate change. A hundred years ago, we started driving cars. That has been one of the worst things to pollute the air. We do some things also to pollute the air, but the worst are actually the corporations. 
And what's happened is we have made choices early on and we continue to make those same kinds of choices. And we're thinking that, oh, I drive the car, the, the fumes go into the air, it's no big deal. Those fumes are collecting in the air for everyone's cars for 7 million or 7 billion people, however many we are today. And it's not going any place. In addition, we're cutting down the forests. And by cutting down the forests, we're cutting down the lungs or those things that would filter out all the pollution we're putting into the air. So we are working ourselves towards late stage disease for our mother earth. And then it will go on a trajectory that we cannot stop in her illness if we don't immediately intervene. So when I think about the future, the future is right here, right now. What choices am I making today that are gonna impact decades from now, the lives of my offspring, of our children, of our grandchildren and our great grandchildren. That's the future that we have to think about and it requires that we make real changes today. So yeah, I'll leave it with that. Thank you, Ate. Yisha, did you wanna add anything to the question of when you hear the term either indigenous or native futurism or black futurism, what does it mean for you that is different than how we traditionally understand fantasy and what is opened up as a place of possibility? I mean, how can I follow up that last answer? <laughs> but, you know, to me, Afrofuturism and Native Futurism is really about um, imagining a future in which we get to thrive, you know, beyond surviving, where we really get to decide how this world works. And, you know, historically, I'm speaking specifically on my experience of living in this country because I've never lived anywhere else, but the foundation of this country is the attempted genocide of native people and the kidnapping and enslavement of African people. That is in every seed Every, every fiber of American existence is rooted in that. And therefore the way in which we live is rooted in that. And so to me, Afro and native and indigenous futurism is about uprooting that foundation and being able to live in a world that is determined by us um, and that is beautiful. And yeah, <laughs> I don't know if there's more to say to that, but thank you. Thank you. And it makes me think both, uh, what both of you are saying is that like my, I've been an organizer for 20 years. So before I even started uh, Mycelium Youth Network, I, uh, you know, had done a lot of grassroots organizing, a lot of GTV organizing. And there was such a sense of burnout that was happening, not because of the you know, beautifulness or importance of the struggle itself, uh, but because of the constant need that organizers uh, do in many ways, um, which is just to try to like talk back to dominance, to say, no, let us assert, consistently assert our ability to be human, our ability to be you know, seen as worthy in many ways of like living full lives. And so 
and that also that Dominus tells us that change is so incremental that you have to kind of make these like tiny steps towards progress. Uh, and so my question to both of you is, is how can our ancestral traditions and practices, ancestral wisdom or youth visioning create new ways of moving within spaces? And what happens when we use that vision to be able to craft uh, a future that feels like it is pulling from something deeper than just the consistent talk back that happens? I, I had to take a deep breath to that one. <laughs> um, <sighs> this is such an important question. And I feel like my answer is really similar to what I shared before um, about, you know, uprooting this faulty foundation that we are living on and building a new one in its place rather than sort of like doing damage control, which it seems like you were kind of getting at, you know, with the like um, combating dominance. But I guess, is your, is your question more about like, how do we do that or what does that look like? It's really about like how, what I've seen happen when I, for example, when I really engage with youth visioning or with ancestral traditions is that all of a sudden it's not about talking back to dominance. It's about creating our futures. Right. And how have you seen uh, that work for either you and the work that you're doing? Uh, what is that? What, how do you think that those traditions and practices mm -hmm then lead to us being able to, to do something different. Right. Yeah. So I think this is a really like layered question and I don't think I'll ever be able to like give a full answer to it. But what I'm feeling on my heart right now is that we have the power to determine what our spaces are and how we choose to love people and hold people in our inner circles and in our activist circles and in the ways that we live our lives. And I really believe that this work is as much about the internal work as it is about the external work. And what I mean by that is when we're organizing, we have to this is like kind of corny, but like we literally have to be the change that we want to see. We have to build anti-oppressive structures in our organizations, in our families. We have to break the chain of ancestral trauma. Like we have to practice these things and we have to build the foundation that we want to see for the world in our organizing and in our daily lives. And I really do believe that that is how we begin to create that for the world because we have to be able to see that for ourselves and live it and experience it to know that that is absolutely what we deserve and what we need and that it is possible to get there so again just building the world and the foundation that we want to see in our daily lives and in our work Atta, did you want to add anything to that um Yes, I want to uh, approach this from a different place, and that is that from a very indigenous understanding, when we think about authority, I'm going to use the word authority, but what I'm really talking about here is power. 
when someone is a leader, I come from the Apache community, not just the Apache community, but that's one of the communities I come from. And in the Apache communities, we didn't have leaders. No one was elected. No one was appointed. And what we understood about leadership is that at any point, if that leader failed us, that we'd stop following them. It was that simple. A leader is only a leader. They're not really a leader per se. What they are is they're just sort of a, a scout, a guide, someone that's out in front. And what we've unfortunately been forced to believe, especially in America, is that we have to submit to authority. We have to submit to power. But I want to explain something about the idea of power. Power only exists in so much as we contribute to it, as we submit to it, as we agree to it. So if someone is my leader, they're only my leader because I choose to allow them to be my leader. And we really need to own this and stop accepting the fact that someone has a title, someone's been elected, someone has money, or someone is older than I am, and therefore I have to do what they say. We don't. We never have to do that. My mama always used to say, nobody gets to tell me what to do. Now, that doesn't give me permission to be irresponsible. But the idea is I get to make the choices about my life in my own way. And from an indigenous perspective, with regard to the consequences, and not my consequences, our consequences. And so I say this because, unfortunately, what we're having in the discourses, at least in academia, are words like colonial settlerism. They're using the term settler. And when I think about someone coming into my home, raping our women, stealing our home, enslaving our children, because that happened here where we're at. Our people got enslaved. And when I think about all these things, that's not a settler. That's a sick person, a sick person who is a thief and a murderer. And let's call it what it is. Let's not use nice language. Ease the guilt of what has been done to us. What's been done to us is horrendous. And we are suffering the consequences of all of us. And the people who run the corporations have no scruples. Their only objective is to make more money. And that is what we're up against. But that's only because we have to remember we are also capitalists. We're capitalists in so much as we make choices with our dollars. We vote with our dollars. And we make choices about what corporations we're going to support. So every time we want to have a more expensive cell phone, a nicer computer, a more prestigious car, that we're making choices with our votes. And these choices continue to empower these corporations to continue to disempower us. And so we have to think about that relationship of power. And to do so means we need to make some different kinds of choices. The more sovereign we can be as individuals and as communities, the more reliant on ourselves that we can be, the less we submit to this power that we're giving over to those that are making decisions about our lives. We can blame it on the government. We can blame it on, on politicians all we want. But at the end of the day, it's the corporations that make real decisions about what's happening in the world to all communities in the world. So yeah, I just leave it there. Thank you. And yes, I echo that snapping of the fingers. That was amazing. Thank you so much, Ate. And you started to 
address part of what my next question was going to be, which is that as we think apocalyptic resilience, so much of the idea for this conference was both the idea that adults and young people that I know have been talking about the idea that it feels like we're already in an apocalypse. And for a lot of Black and Indigenous communities, we've been in apocalypses. This is not our first apocalypse because of the genocide and the erasure of our traditions and our practices and how we've had to operate in a system that was really not built for us. And so I think about that and I think about that in relationship also to the fact that the sky turned orange here in the Bay Area and we have massive forest fires that are getting worse every year. We've had the worst hurricane season for those that live on the South and the East Coast. And so we're in an environment right now where it feels like we're also approaching a climate apocalypse. And so within that though, so much of the other part of apocalyptic resilience is that resilience place and that place of hope and of possibility. And if things are falling apart, like we're seeing them, then what does it mean for what we can create in its place? How does that open up a place of possibility? And so my next question is, what does resilience look like right now to you? And what are the lessons that, or the teachings or wisdom that you would like to impart to our larger audience? And I'll also recognize that I'll have one or two more questions after this. And then I would love to take audience questions. So as you are thinking about in the audience, the presentation, just keep in mind that you can also type out questions and we'll take a couple of those at the end. I'll take you passing it to me. <laughs> I feel like every time I'm about to answer one of these questions, I have to like take a breath. Like they're so powerful and important. What does resilience look like in this time? For me, I feel like the core of who I am is really a grassroots activist and organizer. And so for me, resilience looks like community, looks like mass mobilization, looks like people power. And, you know, just to refer to this faulty election, <laughs> as Ate was sort of getting at, which was really important. But anyways, this election was determined by the people because of the organizing and the power and the refusal to accept what we were facing and to me, that's what we're here for. That's what this moment is. It is about standing together. It is about, to me, movement building is community building, is building power together. And so that is resilience in this moment, among other things. But, you know, one of the key things, as I heard you ask about, that I really want people to feel in this moment as we're talking about movement building and community building and power building and all that good stuff, I feel like it is so easy to feel defeated and pessimistic in this time because we're facing like a literal apocalypse and that shit is scary like excuse my language but it is terrifying rightfully so and though our communities our ancestors have experienced a state of apocalypse before like there is no no human being no living thing goes through something as traumatic as this and it's just okay like it's just happy every day you know and we need to recognize that and give ourselves the space to process and to sit with that and to allow ourselves to go through what we're going through. 
And I really believe that what we are experiencing right now, all of the crises that are happening, whether it be the pandemic, the recession, climate crisis, whatever it is, there's so much right now. All of those things are a direct result of our crumbling foundation. You know, this foundation of attempted genocide and enslavement, this foundation of white supremacy and colonialism slash murder slash pillaging slash all the things that they said, our foundation of capitalism and patriarchy, like all of these systems are unsustainable ways of living, of existing on this planet. And so for whatever reason in this specific moment, we're experiencing those systems crumbling. And because of that, we have this real unique opportunity to actually dismantle those systems and build something new in its place that is based in ritual and indigenous practice and Afrofuturism and equity and humanity and respect and justice and true sustainability, like all of these things that we are living for, that we're fighting for, we have the ability in this moment to build that foundation, to build that new foundation. And it's not just going to poof happen, like it's going to take some serious work and dedication and community building and movement building, but we have the opportunity to do that in this moment. And so I want you to feel optimistic and I want you to feel like we're not just doing damage control right now. We are doing lasting, generational, pivotal work. And we are standing in the legacy of our ancestors who have been carrying this work forever. I really believe that we will be the generation that gets to do that work that our ancestors carried for us. And so... In summary, be optimistic. <laughs> Thank you, Isha. I, wa- I want to hop on some of the things that you said and, and just remind people, you know, when we think about slavery and all those boats coming over from Africa, the truth is white people, and I'm going to use the term gringo. I know some people are offended by that, but I'm real specific about who I'm talking about. So when the gringos went to Africa, they weren't the ones that were out disrupting communities and then enslaving them. They were actually going to Africa and they were buying the slaves from other communities that were fighting against each other. So what they introduced, what Gringismo introduced was a slave trade and then other communities got into that. And I say that because the same thing happened here where in Colorado, New Mexico, in this area, when the colonizers came up from Mexico City, one of the things they introduced was a slave trade. Now, they didn't go out and raid communities. What they did is they held slave markets. And so the communities, the Comanche in particular, but other communities would fight amongst communities, steal their women and children and take them to the markets and trade them for guns and horses. So what happens is there's a point at which we need to think about our own complicity in what's happening, right? But what we can take away from that as horrendous as slavery has been from Africa and here in the Southwest, which nobody knows about or talks about, is that we're still here. There's some choices that our grandparents made and the choices they made, they wanted a better life and a better future for their children. We all want that. 
And in so doing, they had to make some difficult choices sometimes. And in making those choices, they were good enough choices that we're still here. So we need to say, you know what? They made good choices for our resiliency as a community and as family and as individuals. So we're still here. So we're up against assaults from, I say they're the three twins of gringuismo. Gringuismo is white supremacy, but gringuismo involves three things. It's capitalism. It is white supremacy and all it entails, which is a lot of racism all around the world. And it is Christianity. And people get offended when I say this, but everything that was done in the Americas and in Africa was sanctioned by the Catholic Church. And all these other religions broke off. And so now we have Baptists and Protestants and all the others. But at the end of the day, it's all Christianity. So Christianity sanctioned the colonization of the world by Christians and particularly white Christians. So we need to name the beast, and I call it gringismo. People get offended by that, but I don't care. We need to be uncomfortable with the work that we have to do. And so when we name the beast and we say, okay, well, what does it mean? So when we use terms like, well, I'm decolonizing my mind. No, you're not. Decolonize means you give the land back and you undo the damage that's been done. But you know what? That's not a possibility. And it's not realistic to say, if all the white people just pack up and go back to Europe, we'll be okay, because we won't. Because you know what? We have learned how to behave in according to the systems of gringismo. We all behave by those systems. We've learned them. So it's about, I use a term I call colonial enormant or colonization enormant. It's like, let's deal with what's happened to us, take the tools that we have of our resilience and our resistance and our capacity to survive and move forward with what works and reapply those. And as we do this, it's not to say that I have any answers for the young people today. I've been doing this work for 50 years. I've been an activist since I was 13. But that's not to say that I have all the answers. I particularly don't have answers for you. You're going to have to figure out in your own generations what works for you. But what you can take away from the older generations is what we've learned. And so what I've learned is that it's not about the politicians. However, if you run for office, you can make some of the decisions that are there. I've been a grassroots worker for a long time, activist, but I don't necessarily make the decisions. I can influence some of the decisions that are made, but I don't make the decisions. And so the people that are making decisions about all of our lives are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. They're generations older than you are. They're decades older than you are. They're making decisions about your lives. You need to change that. We have one of the youngest, most powerful people in Congress right now, which is Congresswoman Cortez, or Osorio Cortez. And so she's a great example of what young people can do. And that's, I think, part of what needs to happen in order to make these changes. So there's hope. But the hope will not reside on waiting for someone else to do the work for you. You need to step up, step up. We all need to step up. If we don't like the way something's happening, we need to step up, say something, do something, show up, be there and make the changes. That's where our resiliency is going to come from. And I believe in you. I want to echo what you said about the voting. For the first time, the black and brown communities have decided who the president would be. We've talked about this vote. They talk about the Latino bloc. They talk about the African-American bloc. They knew that we were up and coming. Well, we're here now. We're here now. It's not just about voting, but now we need to hold them accountable. That president is there because the black and brown communities voted for him. Now we need to hold him accountable. 
for our issues, for our changes, and not just say, well, he's a president, he has to do what he wants. No, 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 no. We hold him accountable. We made him the leader. We can change that. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. That's actually a great transition point for my next question. My question you really started to allude to at the is around the role of adultism and how adultism really functions. And Mycelium Youth Network works with young people. That's who we serve in many ways, predominantly frontline communities of color. And what I often see happen is the ways in which people, both in EJ movements or environmental justice movements, as well as in organizing, often refer to the hope that young people bring while not taking seriously any of the demands of young people. Or they say that they would like to have young voices present, but they're not actually putting young people in positions of power. And what happens there is that the adultism that is present makes it so that young people are only a tokenized source of hope for adults. So it's not even about the young people, it is about the adults themselves. And it limits the actual creativity and vision and innovation that young people bring. Not just because young people are amazing, but because they're also less indoctrinated into our system. And so the things that adults see as barriers in many ways, at least in conversations I have with young people, do not exist in the same way for young people because they're like, that's ridiculous. Why are we buying into this system? This doesn't make any sense. And so I'm hoping, you know, Ate, you spoke to this a little bit. So Isha, if you can speak to also, how do we start challenging or confronting adultism? And in that, respecting young people's voices and knowledge both at an interpersonal level, so at that one-on-one -on -one level, but also on a larger structural level, because it has to be both. Isha, if I can just pop in, will you tell us that story of your experience of dealing very viscerally and very experientially with exactly what we're talking about here, and that is that adults not listening to you? I'd like to hear your story. Well, there's been a couple experiences one of the experiences I have that actually went viral <laughs> is um, back in February of 2019, I, along with another group of young people, went to try to get Senator Feinstein to sign on to the Green New Deal. And it wound up being this really upsetting interaction in which she really completely dismissed us and really invalidated her responsibility to listen to us and to represent us. There was actually a moment where she asked me how old I was. And at the time I was 16 and she was like, you didn't vote for me. As if that meant that she wasn't responsible for me or my life or my future or any of that, which is just ridiculous now that I'm saying this out loud, because one, if you want to be on a political level, like regardless if I voted for you or not, I'm your constituent. So actually, yes, you are responsible for me and my future. But you know, on a human level, it is the responsibility of the adult generations to ensure that they leave young people at least a livable future. We're not asking for that much. We are asking to literally be able to live 
through our adult years. And that is, that is on the table right now. Like it is a real possibility that my generation will literally not be able to live on this planet in the next 10, 20, 30 years, because it will be uninhabitable. We'll just be focusing on survival because we're trying to get through, you know, the next wildfire, the next hurricane, you know, the next famine, the next disease, the next whatever, like this is the reality that we are facing. And so for adults to dismiss that as if it doesn't matter, is just ridiculous at that. And then this other level that's really important is there's this facade of understanding of caring you know this like oh you're so inspirational or something I hear all the time that really bothers me is like oh the young people are gonna save us like as if you are not living right now as if you're not breathing with two feet planted on the earth like you can do something too like this is not just up to young people and you have no idea like how it feels to hold this on your shoulders, knowing that you might have to live through a real ass apocalypse. Like we think this is an apocalypse right now. This is the surface level of what my generation might be experiencing. And so how do we combat this? That was the real question. Let me not just keep going on about it, but we combat this by really You know, I hate to draw this comparison because it's absolutely not the same, but there are parallels in which we can continue to talk about racism with black and brown people as much as we want, but we know it. We live that experience every day. It is about getting white people to talk to other white people to really start to make some significant change. And I feel like it's similar here where it's like young people can continue to talk to each other and rile each other up. And yes, there is a lot of power that comes out of that. There's a lot of activism and movement building that comes out of that. But we need adults to recognize their responsibility for fighting this fight with us. Because you don't just get to see how awesome and powerful we are and be like, bet that's it, like I'm done. Because then we will not survive, you know? So just having adults take some responsibility. I could go on about this, but I'm going to pass it to Ate. I think I want to begin kind of where you left off and, and remind people about the voting and what happened here. Because if you look at the statistics for voting, half of the white people in this country of voting age voted for Trump. Every two white people that you know, one of them voted for Trump. And I want to say that because I've been doing this work for 50 years and we've made no progress. If the white people will not budge, then, you know, it's going to be the same thing. Young people, I just need to say this to you is you need to think the same way about adults. They're probably not going to budge. Adults get very comfortable with their lives and with the things that they think they know. It's a huge burden to place on you. It's not your responsibility to fix the future. It's our responsibility. Everyone is responsible for the choices that have been made and the choices that continue to be made, right? And so, yeah, it's a responsible of us as adults to expect you to clean up after us, right? That's just the truth. 
So having you at the table is not about having you at the table as a token as they've done to us as black and brown people for decades now. It's not about tokenism. It's about hearing what you have to say and then attempting to incorporate that into a strategy that works for all of us. That's what needs to happen. But you know what? Most adults aren't there just like most white people aren't there. And so here's what I would say. I'd go back to what my mother says. She would say, do it yourself. You want something done right, do it yourself. And so at some point, I'm sorry that I have to say that to you, but that's the truth for all of us. We can't wait for someone else to do what needs to be done. We need to take responsibility and do it or not. You don't have to do anything. Nobody has to do anything, but there's consequences for all the choices that we make. I think that's what's important here. I absolutely want to honor everyone and their contributions that they make. And I don't think that the old people that have been activists for a long time, like myself, that we necessarily have answers for you in terms of your strategies or what you need to do. But what you can take from us are some of the things that work and some of the things that don't work in terms of your strategies. And the other is not get distracted because that's what Gringismo does is it distracts you. So I've been spending most of my life fighting Gringismo, fighting at the very least what I thought was racism. But racism is just a tool. It's a tool of gringuismo. It's a tool of a larger oppressive institution. And so let's stay focused. All I could say to you as an elder is stay focused on what you're really working with. And what you're working with in this case, it may be climate change and it may be the issues around climate, but that's not all it is. You are up against a power dynamic that you already have a relationship to. And the question to ask is, what kind of relationship am I going to have to that? Nobody wants to give up their quality of life. We have a good quality of life here in the U.S., even if we're poor. And we don't want to give up that quality of life. But we might have to. We might have to give some things up. We might have to change some things. Thank you. And I know that we've been talking a little bit about accountability and the role of accountability and what are the parts of complicity that we hold at an individual level? What are the parts at a structural level that we both hold and don't hold? Especially as we think about all of the intersectional isms that exist out there. And so I'm gonna actually start pulling audience questions. And so one of the questions that I would love to have us talk about is what role do you see grassroots organizing and intersectional feminism or anti-colonialism play in your work? And what is the work that we need to start doing, to start building towards apocalyptic resilience? Before I answer that question, I remembered what I was going to add on to the question about adultism, which is on top of this shift in understanding of like responsibility and place in the world, there is also like a very real structural shift that has to happen. You know, for instance, with the local elections that just happened, we had to vote on who was going to be the head of the school board or something like that. Like there was elections happening that were going to directly impact students' lives, young people's lives, and we couldn't vote on it. We couldn't say anything. And that is ridiculous. And it's the same thing like inside of our school structures. Like there are no positions of influence or power that young people get to hold in in our really in our daily lives, but like especially in schools. And that is ridiculous. And we need to shift that. And this actually goes beyond 
young people. This is about all frontline communities. This is about the fact that people who are impacted need to be the leaders, need to be the ones who are making decisions, need to be the ones who are telling the privileged folks or the folks that are benefiting from that sort of systemic privilege what to do, how to shift things. We need black and brown people to be running police commissions and that are in positions to defund the police and to hold police accountable for when they mess up, which they always do. We need young people to be on the school board. We need young people to be advising principals and teachers and building curriculum. And we need to shift who is in positions of power. In addition to this belief shift or this shift of responsibility, and in that, I forgot what the second question is. <laughs> I think, do you want to answer that? Why? Well, think- well, you know, I, I want to add to what you're saying, and that is that you're absolutely right. But my advocacy in this case is don't wait for someone else to give you permission. The problem with these structures, and the only way you're going to take these structures down is to step up and take them down. And so run for mm-hmm. office. Get into those positions. I will say, though, that they're awfully boring. The last thing you want to do is sit in meeting after meeting after meeting, listening to all these issues that you have to contend with. And it's just like, why do people even care about this? You know, it takes a lot of your time. But the real important issues, we need to be at the table to make them. And you're absolutely right. Young people are omitted. People of color are omitted. We have a token one or two people at a table and they're supposed to have all the answers or know all the things. And they don't. They just don't. I forgot the question, too. I'm glad I'm not the only one. (laughs) The question was around what is the role of grassroots organizing and intersectional feminism and anti-colonialism in creating resilience and in your work as a whole? Well, I feel like that is my work, (laughs) to be honest. Like, I don't think that it's a piece, like it's literally the entirety. You kind of like said it all. But, you know, I guess one thing I will say here is I am a climate justice organizer and I really hate that terminology because really I am a fighter for the people. I am I am an organizer for collective liberation. Like that's what I am. And I feel like that definition just simplifies it too much because what climate justice is, to go back to some of the things I was talking about before, is about completely reimagining the way that we live on this planet and this country specifically. It is about dismantling our foundation of white supremacy and colonialism and patriarchy and capitalism and building something new in its place, again, that is based in equity and humanity and justice and sustainability. And because of that, climate justice work is about collective liberation, is about working to dismantle these foundational systems of oppression in every way that they exist, whether that be through rising sea levels and environmental injustice or police brutality or the complete stealing and disrespect of indigenous land and indigenous people. I could go on and on. There are a lot of ways in which systems of oppression impact us, but it is all of that. And so that is the work. (laughs) 
you know, in all these years that I've, that I've done this work, people have called me an activist. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not an activist. Yes, I'm an activist in the sense. But really, at the end of the day, and it took all my life to realize this, my sole intent throughout my life was exactly what you're saying, Isha, and that is to dismantle gringismo, mm. absolutely dismantle it. Police brutality is an issue. It's a tool of something larger. Yeah. And that larger I describe as gringismo. It's Christianity, it's capitalism, it's racism, it's all these isms. And that includes patriarchy. That's all the ways in which people are oppressed and power dynamics are structured and hierarchy so that we have to respond to them instead of saying, no, I refuse. I'm not going to do that. We're going to do this differently. You're in another space now. And it puts us in danger. I'll be honest and say I served a year of time as a political prisoner. I know what it is. I know what it is to be in danger. I've had police guns at my head, right? And so the question you have to ask yourself is how serious are you about these changes that you want to make? Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be at the extreme. It's a spectrum. You can find your place, any place along that spectrum, but step into it, show up, do the work, you know, do what needs to be done. And it's not an exercise in just identity or thinking about it would be cool to be this kind of activist now. It's not that. It's like, this is our life. Our lives are in danger and have been in danger for 500 years. You'll either do something about it or you don't. And you don't have to do anything. But if you choose to, recognize the dangers, but also recognize your potential. But your potential is not given to you. It's inherent. You empower yourself to do what needs to be done in the ways you think it needs to be done. That's what I would say. That's powerful. I feel like every time you answer, I just like feel like I'm in church. Like this is. <laughs> <laughs> so what does it mean to create and nurture a regenerative healing and anti-colonial space? Like, what does that look like? And it can be at a super local level. So what does it mean in like your relationship with self and family? Or it can be like on a larger community or state level. So can you just talk a little bit about what does it mean to be in these spaces? And then how do we handle conflict when they arise? Because the conflict question is actually one that a lot of people had brought up in the chat. It's just like, when things don't go exactly how we're thinking they're going, what does it mean to call people in? Let me start. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me say something about conflict, because this is a Christian norm that you've been, a script that you've been given. And the script is avoid conflict, that we should only have peace. But Indian people say the white man's idea of peace is prepare for war. Mm. So what I say about conflict is there's nothing wrong with conflict. Out of conflict comes change. You're going to have to own conflict. If someone is doing something, whether they're being patriarchal, whether they're being heterosexist, all the different ways you need to call them on it. If it's your friend, you need to just call them on it and not because they're going to change. And that's the other part I would say about it. Just because you propose something and you have the right idea and you have a good idea and it is the direction we should take, that doesn't mean people are going to support you. And if you don't get what you want, that's not a reason to hate on people. You just keep doing the work, right? Think of it as a family dynamic. Maybe there's something that your sibling is doing that is just offensive to you. And you open up and you just say it to it. But you know what? I bet they're not going to change. But at least they understand that you set a, a boundary and said, when you cross this boundary, you're going to hear from me each and every time. And I'm going to constantly remind you that this is not OK. We're not in the business of changing people. 
And at the end of the day, that's exactly what we're attempting to do is to change people so that we'll have better outcomes. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Structures are built by people. When we say the government, we're talking about individuals. And it's those individuals we have to convince to do something differently. And then we have to ask ourselves, am I willing to make the changes and sometimes negotiate, negotiate something that works for both of us, right? So we have these people walking around with Confederate flags. You know what? They're Americans too. And while I don't think they have a right to the level of violence that they want to introduce, we also have to respect that we live with them. So how do we negotiate and find a place where we can live together harmoniously? We don't have to love each other. We don't have to like each other. We have to live together. And that's the struggle. That's the real struggle. There is conflict, so let's, let's own it. But then the other is, so what are we negotiating for? Because we're not going to just get what we want. After 50 years of doing this work, I know we're not just going to get what we want. Mm. You know, the truth is, I really don't know the answer to this question. I just want to be honest about that. Like, I think we need to be honest. But I think that I'm still trying to figure that out. And I think that I'm going to kind of refer to what Ate said, which is like, we don't need to avoid conflict at all times. And I think it's kind of the same thing that I'm trying to get at, which is like, we're so afraid to make mistakes that we hold ourselves back and then we don't learn and we don't grow and we don't change. And then we're going to continue to live in the same world that we're living in. So I will refer to what Ate said, which is like continue to ask questions and to make mistakes and to learn and be open and to set boundaries and to affirm those boundaries and to, you know, break systemic boundaries and, and all that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. Thank you. And we are now five minutes away and I want to recognize that. And so I want to just open up the space at there or Isha, if there's anything else that you would like to talk about, it has been, at least for me, I'll only speak for myself, such an amazing learning opportunity. I think that anytime I speak to either one of you, either on a small conversation or in passing, I always learn so, so, so much. And so I'm grateful for your presence here. And if there's anything that you were like, oh, I really wanted to touch upon this or speak to that, let us know right now. Ate, do you have anything? <laughs> you know, I, I had the wonderful opportunity in April and May to work with some of the youth out there in the Bay Area with the things that they're doing. And I say work with, I wasn't working with, I got to listen in, right? I just facilitated discussion. And I want to really encourage all of you who are participating here today, I want to encourage you to know that within you, there lies the seeds that if they're just planted and you just step out and do the work, you know what, you're going to make the changes. And you don't have to do it the rest of your life. Maybe it's just one small thing you do, but whatever you do, you know what, just do something. Feel empowered to do that. And make mistakes. As Isha said, you know, you're only going to learn by doing. And you can change your mind. What you do today, tomorrow you may say, you know what, I didn't like that and it didn't work and I'm going to do it differently. That's okay because we're in a process. We're part of a process and we're all learning. And what we were doing 50 years ago in the Chicano movement, the American Indian movement and the black movements, what we were doing worked then, they don't work today. So give yourself permission to say, okay, we need to do it differently. That's all right, right? So that's all I say. I just really wanna encourage people to get out and to do something, do something, show up, do something. 
And the young people that I had a chance to have contact with that are doing this work, I feel so good about that. I feel so good. I'm glad that you feel good. <laughs> I think what I will add here is resistance is forever. And this work is forever. No matter how much we accomplish, there will always be more that we can do and ways that we can be better. And so that means that this work is, we're thinking long-term, long run, like this is a marathon. And we have to know that and we have to be dedicated to that. And we also have to live our lives accordingly. And so what I mean by that is it is essential that we nourish ourselves and we nourish each other and we take care of each other and ourselves because if we don't then we will not be able to do this forever work and in the spirit of honesty and transparency again like i'm also struggling right now to figure out what self-care means in this moment where everything feels so life or death everything feels so urgent but we have to realize that, you know, the little day-to-day -day tasks that we're doing that are a part of this larger movement are not life or death. And we have to be able to take this space for ourselves to rest and to, you know, drink tea, drink water, eat healthful food. That is part of this work. Sustaining ourselves in order to sustain this movement is part of that work. So just recognizing resistance is forever. This is a marathon. So hold yourself and hold your people. Like this is about collective community care as well. And that is part of how we are going to win. That is a wonderful space for transition. That is so amazing. Thank you both so, so, so much. It is such an honor to have you open up Apocalyptic Resilience, an Afro and Indigenous virtual adventure this weekend. We are so excited about what is coming for the rest of the weekend. But for right now, just let me express my deepest and sincere gratitude. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart and from mycelium as a whole in our larger community. This is such necessary work right now. Nos enterraron en su mierda, pero somos las semillas absorbiendo el abono para sembrar la rebeldía a pesar de pesadillas. De humilla las guerrillas nos salvaron con ideas y balas contra la cobardía. Espíritu de Wicca tiene sed, está en sequía, por eso crea dependencia con su oligarquía. La sangre fría del hielo congela autonomía, la energía de la opresión envidia. Thank you for listening to our amazing keynote presentations from our first annual Apocalyptic Resilience and Afro and Indigenous Futuristic Adventure Conference. For the past year, we've been collaborating with WeRise and Bioneers to bring you an amazing project to support young people in telling their stories. If you are interested in learning more about our work or our partnership with WeRise and Bioneers, please go to our website at www.myceliumyouthnetwork.org. That's mycelium, M-Y-C-E-L-I-U-M, youth, Y-O-U-T-H, network, N-E-T-W-O-R-K dot O-R-G. Feel free to go to our website, donate, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for more updates about our work. Wishing you all the best and can't wait to talk to you soon.